Hello and welcome, my friends. I'm Cassidy and I am alive. This week, we're talking all about internet law, but actually not all about it. You see, we're only covering a select few topics that I have chosen because, you know what, this is something that we can do several parts on, right? Definitely not part two next week, but consider this part one because there's a lot of internet law to cover and we're only going just just a little bit into it this week. After the song, we're covering Randy Stare. Piece of true crime, I guess. Also, internet law, I guess. Who's Randy Stare? What is Randy Stare? You're gonna have to listen to find out. Very interesting topic. Very interesting topic, I will say that. I'm gonna catch you up a little bit on my week. Not too much. There's not a whole lot to talk about, but here's Floating Roach. There it is. I'm gonna see you in just a little minute. See you soon, friends. We are dead! Hey there, how you doing? It's Cassidy. Whew, whew, right? What a fucking week. Summer. Ah, summer. So hot in summer in Australia. It sucks, right? Ugh. And plus, plus, let's just, it's not, not just hot, right? It's not just really hot, it's fucking tropical. So, it'll be pouring down rain one day, and then the next day, it's like 40 fucking degrees. I hate it. <laughs> I absolutely hate it. Can't it just be hot all the time, or raining all the time, or preferably like a nice, you know, 26, 27 degrees all the time? You know, just, I like that weather. I like... Like, people like seasons. I fucking hate seasons. Just be normal, right? <laughs> how you doing? My god, how was your week? I said I was going to catch you up on two weeks of my life. Oh, I almost swallowed my fucking gum then. Ugh. So, I said last week I got two weeks to catch you up on. But, I got a bit of a busy, busy week coming up. So, I'm actually recording this Friday night. Saturday morning, right after I posted, or published, I should say, the previous week's podcast, so I've only got to catch you up on, like, a week of my life. It was a pretty eventful week, to be honest with you. I went on a date with a guy, right? Oh my god, I, after letting it sort of sit there out in the open for a little while, I firmly placed my foot down and came out as bisexual. I think a lot of people more or less expected that to come out, <laughs> for me to come out, I suppose, but, you know, I let it, I finally, finally placed my foot down firmly and came out. Because, mainly, I mean, I went on a date with a guy, and I like this guy, and I think, um, not even think, I'm definitely seeing him again, so... You know, not coming out, it, there would be, it would be a shock to at least a few people, I suppose. Like, wow, when, when did that happen? When, when did Cassidy, like, yeah. So I did that, and the anxiety in doing it, oh my god. But I just felt, like afterwards, I didn't feel any relief. 
I didn't feel anything like that. I just felt normal. And that's the best part, right? I just felt fucking normal. And yes, wow, it's a, it's a big step, you know? I, I'm 27 and going on 28 and I wait until now. And it's just, mm, there are so many things in my life I should have done a lot sooner. Depression really made it kind of difficult to do so quickly. I just would rather have wallowed in my depression. T- took my antipsychotic medication to try to to try to mask, not mask, to try to um, what's the word? Uh, I for some reason I can't think of the fucking word. Suppress, suppress. See, when you can't think of a word, just vamp for a couple of minutes and it'll eventually come to you. To try to suppress the feelings of dysphoria. The dirty little secret is, that doesn't really do much, right? The feelings just intensify, the dosage goes up, and eventually you're at the point where it's like, hey, either I transition, or I kill myself. And I chose life, and I love life. Wow, I'm liking life, I'm learning to love it, I'm learning to love myself, and that's cool. That's cool, and this week... Well, this... (laughs) the, The week that passed, the week that passed, as of the time of recording... Yeah, yeah, that was a week where I really, really learned to appreciate life. And that's a great fucking thing. That's a great thing. It really is. Beyond that, there's really not a whole lot to be catching you up on, right? There really isn't. There really isn't. I didn't watch, I didn't watch any interesting pro wrestling this week, really. AEW was kind of whatever. Um... In NXT, they fucking beat Tony Storm again. I'm just like, Jesus Christ, just when does a contract run out? Oh my god. Because Tony Storm, here's the thing about Tony Storm. And I hope I put up a picture of Tony Storm because she is fucking beautiful. And I like her legs. I want her legs. But I can't have them. Yeah. But she, I would make her the top star of my promotion. If I had a wrestling promotion, she would just be the top star. Not the top female star, just the top star. That's it. And they just keep beating her. And it's like, Jesus fucking Christ, she's not getting any younger, right? You're gonna run out of time. And I know how this works with this company, right? Unless they're the chosen few, once they get to a certain age, especially the women, they're just not gonna push them. They're just not gonna push them because it's like, oh, you're too old now. It's like, dude, fuck off. She's like 28. What What are you talking about? But I'm not here to talk about pro wrestling this week. You can tell by the title. This week, we're going into the internet lore. The depths. We're exploring a couple of rabbit holes. Not as far in depth as a lot of other people will. Right, I'm not going to dedicate a full two-hour podcast to exploring any of these particular rabbit holes. There are a couple that I will eventually. Don't know if you'd call them internet lore, per se. Like... I'm going to do a big, big podcast about the West Memphis 3. That is one rabbit hole I definitely want to explore. But for now, we're just going to dive under the surface in that big ocean and just explore the bits and pieces of that iceberg. I've got a couple of things that we're going to talk about and we're going to get into them right after this transition. First subject of the day is why TMND, or... You're the man now, dog. You're the man now, dog. This is old internet shit. Launched 
20 years ago by a man named Max Goldberg, YTMND was a website that hosted proto-memes, then known primarily as internet fads. Very, very basic stuff. You had a static image, usually tiled to the page, but sometimes it was centered. Often there was some zooming text, but the trademark feature was a looping audio file. Of course, YTMND, generally satire, that was kind of the overall point of the site. I could tell you more about its history, but instead, we're looking at a more interesting piece of material here. <laughs> a more interesting piece of material. Oh my god, that's... whatever. <laughs> the many, many conflicts of YTMND. Most well-known is probably YTMND versus E-Bombs World. E-Bombs World, for those unaware, essentially 9gag before 9gag. Just, that's the short of it, I don't want to go into what E-Bombs World is. <laughs> so, in 2006, a YTMND page featuring a montage of Lindsay Lohan was rehosted on E-Bombs World, with an E-Bombs World trademark, a trademark, sorry, watermark, and zero credit given to YTMND or the creator of the original page. This led to an all out internet war. YTMND lo loses. YTMND users, along with allied forces from sites such as 2Channel, that was 4chan before 4chan basically, launched their cyber attack. We're talking DDoSing, calculated and organized spam posting, concern trolling, just crashing the fucking servers as much as possible. The works. This was denounced by Max Goldberg. To his credit, he wanted no part of this, but he would continue to use these attacks as leverage to bargain a deal. All references to the other site, including the rehosted page, would be removed from the respective website. And so ended this brief saga, and in the end, the only one left to blame was Lindsay Lohan. You bitch. Look at what you have created. Ugh. In 2006 and 2007, respectively, YTMND received cease and desist orders. 2006, it was from the Church of Scientology, and as one might expect, it was met with heavy mockery to the nth degree, and beyond that, nothing really came of it. It was kind of a funny little... It really was a funny time, to be honest with you. Because Max Goldberg, in that case, just didn't give a shit. Like, fuck Scientology was the general idea. And if you've been on the internet for any period of time, you understand that the internet denizens hate Scientology. So, you know, you can pick your poison there. Maybe you think that uh, it's sort of uncalled for mocking Scientology. But look, fuck, fuck Scientology is my point of view. The 2007 C&D order, however, came from video game company Sega. Essentially, Sega wanted to protect the Sonic animated series, you know, that IP, a lot of pages fo poking fun at the Sonic says bit, the, um, that's when Sonic would give sort of PSAs, so the, the really famous one is about sexual assault, where if Sonic says, if someone touches you in a way that you don't want them to, that's no good, and that was memed, as I said, proto-memes, this was really before memes in their current form. It was everywhere, so much people poking fun at Sonic Says. And there's a lot of Sonic Says shit that's just kind of stupid, like... 
talking about ignorant children getting into tumble dryers and just a whole lot of shit. They were making fun of that. So, <sighs> Sega didn't like this. They really didn't like their character Sonic from the animated series of all things being mocked in such a way. And inevitably, inevitably, that would, that would create, you know, no, that would create, sorry, that would prompt a C&D, a cease and desist order from Sega. Sega, in the letter, they said that if things were not removed in seven days, they would be going after Max Goldberg and YTMND. They would be raining down on them with fire and fury and the force of their entire legal team. But seven days later, nothing happened. Nothing happened at all. I guess that they saw the writing on the wall immediately. And Sega, from that point, learned to not challenge or test the internet. <coughs> but, look, YTMND, there are a lot of stories from YTMND. These are just two that I find maybe not interesting, but to be, like, the most important in the early, the early stages of the internet versus other sections of the internet, you know, the, the deeper internet versus the surface level internet, and then the internet versus the outside world. If you want more on YTMD, Wang, Justin Wang, YouTuber, great fucking YouTuber, has a lot of good, like, tales from the internet he calls the series. He has a couple of videos on YTMD that I complete. I absolutely, absolutely encourage you to watch if you're interested. He, he was around throughout the entire period of time, during that whole, as that was going on, I was still really young, I have very vague memories of this, I do remember the Scientology and Sega bit, when it comes to the E-Bombs World thing, this is stuff I've had to learn, because I just, I, I know nothing about that from memory, right? Wang was there, he'll give you all of the information, so seek that out if you want more context. Transition. The next thing that we're going to talk about is Dashcon. Oh my god. Dashcon was a failed convention for Tumblr users. So, yeah, you can really see that this is probably going to go somewhere interesting. Over a July 2014 weekend in Illinois, around 1,000 Tumblr users gathered at the Renaissance Schamburg Convention Center for this Dashcon event which was to feature a live edition of podcast Welcome to Night Vale. I'm just, I don't even know what that is. Some weird hipster bullshit, I suppose. A performance by Steam Powered Giraffe. They're actually not bad. And appearances by actor Doug Jones and comic artist Noel Stevenson, or Noel Stevenson. Right off the bat, there were problems. Event organizers claimed that they were short $20,000, which they would need to pay the venue immediately or face an event shutdown. Call it extortion if you'd like. The event organizers began to solicit donations from attendees, raising allegedly enough to keep the event going. Allegedly. Soon after, however, many scheduled guests were informed that they would have to pay their own accommodation, despite Dashcon having already started. This led to cancellations across the board. Refunds were demanded, but instead of refunds, the patrons demanding them were given raffle tickets and, I quote, an extra hour in the ball pits. 
Now, the ball pit is probably the best part of this whole thing. What is the ball pit? Well, the promise was a huge, like, room size, basically an entire room, that was a big inflatable ball pit. But the ball pit delivered was not the ball pit that was promised, right? Because the ball pit that was promised were, like, it was a huge ball pit for these grown fucking adults to play around in. And I say that because it's funny, but to be honest, that actually seems kind of fucking awesome. To be frank. <laughs> but the ball pit they delivered looked more like this. <laughs> That's the ball pit. A tiny, barely fit for one person, child's inflatable swimming pool with plastic balls. <laughs> and eventually somebody pissed in it. That was Dashcon. A single ball pit in a huge room... And of course, it has spawned endless memes. Throughout your online escapades, doubtless you will see the term ball pit, and that is exactly what is being referenced. It has become a thing of legend in internet lore. And the final note on Dashcon, remember that $20,000 fee required by the venue? Total BS. Like, absolute nonsense. Just bullshit. A leaked document has revealed that little over 11k, I think it was $11,075, something like that, was collected on site and went absolutely nowhere. It was pocketed by the event organizers. Of course, they deny this claim. It is supposed, it is alleged. However, the evidence is kind of irrefutable because the documents are there, right? It's right there. They pocketed this money, it was... That's why I said call it extortion if you'd like, because I think that this whole thing, they just... It was extortion, right? So that, my friends, was the short-term... A short-term, short-form story of the failure that was Dashkind. Just a bad idea to begin with. There was a second attempt to do Dashkon called Emoticon, and it wasn't as much of an abject failure. This one just kind of didn't work. It failed, basically, because there was no interests. Dashcon, though, was, there was a lot of interest for this, right? Only a thousand people went for the about 20,000 that showed interest, only about a thousand went, and it turned out to be essentially a scam with a single small ball pit. There's a lot of footage you can find online of people that went there. Like, there were guests, patrons there, that were there just to sort of, I guess, document what's happening, or, um, IRL troll, I suppose. I, I think that some of those videos are really enlightening, really funny, you should go check them out. Uh, the Internet Historian did a video on Dashcon where he goes further in depth than I did. This was just a brief overview. And again, transition. Now, before the song of the week this week, we're gonna get a little dark. That's right, it's a shorter show than last week. Last week was two hours. A bit shorter this week. But we're getting dark, right? And don't you worry, it's only going to get darker returning from the break. But for now, we're just dimming those lights as we explore Creepypasta. Now, Creepypasta, at least initially, referred to short horror-themed stories copy-pasted across the internet. Those become more of a catch-all term used in reference of any kind of horror story originating on the internet. The only real accepted qualifiers for the term creepypasta 
are the aforementioned horror themes and, generally speaking, the work be in the form of text. Primarily in the form of text, accompanied with photos, video, whatever, but primarily it's, it's a text-based story. The origins of the term are largely debatable, though it is mostly accepted to have come from 4chan originally, 2006, 2007, around that period of time of 4chan. However, the origin of Creepypasta as a concept, while unknown by exact date, most certainly is far older than that. We have, for your consideration, late 90s chain emails that told brief spooky stories, many of which reposted on GeoCities, on Usenet, internet forums, what have you. I, personally, would argue that The Legend of Polybius, a mysterious arcade game with supposed ties to government intelligence agencies, is itself an early form of creepypasta. What can be said, and what is very much considered to be the earliest, at least popular, creepypasta story, is that of Ted the Caver. Posted to Angelfire in 2001, this story follows a man named Ted and a group of his friends as they explore a cave system that becomes creepier and creepier and spookier as the story progresses. I would suggest giving this a read. It is a very well done story. Just Google it. Like I said, 2001, 20 years old at this point, you'll find it. In years that followed, there were many notable creepypastas that showed up. A lot of them, at least in those early years, did gain attention through 4chan. Among these, just to list a few, Jeff the Killer, Squidward Suicide, Abandoned by Disney, that's actually a really good one, Username 666, The Russian Sleep Experiment, which I highly recommend, really good shit, and of course, my personal favourite, Ben Drowned. Now. Before I tell you a bit about Ben Drowned, yes, I'm aware that this is nowhere near the full extent, just a notable few of those popular early creepypastas. If I didn't mention yours, write it down in the comment section. But before I get into Ben Drowned, oh, sorry, <laughs> before I get, let's get into Ben Drowned, I should say. Ben Drowned, created by Jaduzable, now going by his real name, Alex D. Hall, he's got the will of D., tells the story of a man named Matt, who buys a used copy of The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask from a very, I wouldn't say creepy, but kind of ominous, ominous old man at this weird, weird garage sale. He hands him this cartridge and says, well, so long then. As it turns out, he probably said, well, so long then. So just, this is, this gets very interesting. And Matt, he would quickly come to find that this cartridge was haunted by a deceased boy named Ben, who, as you may have guessed, drowned. Jaduzable kept this story going for months in a series of 4chan posts, posted, I believe, to the X board, the paranormal board. Don't quote me on that, but I do believe that that was where it was posted originally. Jaduzable, he kept the story going, series of posts, throughout 2010, going to the length of posting very disturbing in-game footage, complete with glitching, the creepier aspects of the game being used. The game, or better described, Ben, seemingly leading Matt, communicating with Matt, 
haunting that. And it culminates in kind of an untrustworthy narrator twist. Right, from there, where the initial story ended, we entered phase two, which was kind of a forum-based ARG. That's just kind of bullshit, to be honest with you. And then, essentially, part three, just, it became a fantasy story, too self-aware. I, I don't like acts two and three, I think they're kind of just... It, it, it sort of becomes a pretentious sort of art project, where the first original act, Ben Drowned, was just really excellent. A lot of people bought into it, which obviously it's not true, but oh my god, it was so well done. But that's just a brief overview. Do go out of your way to read this. As I said, probably don't bother with the pretentious ARG that followed, but oh my god, go out of your way to read Ben Drowned. I highly recommend it. It's one of the best things you will read online. It, it's fucking great. Now, with the, with the growing popularity of Creepypasta as a storytelling medium, Many sites, specifically catering to the niche, they would arise, creating a platform for new material, as well as archiving the classics, such as Jeff the Killer, such as Ben Drowned, such as Ted the Caver. I would be remiss if I did not mention the Creepypasta Wiki, which is an invaluable source, as well as the SCP Foundation, which, come to think of it, actually, is a possible help probable topic for a future podcast. That That's a rabbit hole you want to fucking go down, and we'll go down it in a future episode. That's something I will do, come to think of it. But the final creepypasta that we're going to look at this week is the absolute most popular, like, without doubt. And that, of course, is Slender Man. There's a shitty Hollywood film based on Slendy now in 2014 to school children literally stabbed their friend, compelled by the Slender Man. A myriad of video games exist. Slender Man has gone mainstream, right? Just absolutely, Slender Man's part of the cultural zeitgeist outside of the internet at this point. But some of us do recall Slendy's more humble origins. So, on June 10th, 2009, on the Something Awful forums, uh, just look up the Something Awful forums, don't worry about it. Just look it up if you're interested. A user named Victor Surge, that was his screen name, not his actual name, as part of a creepy Photoshop contest, he created Slender Man by editing in a tall, thin, faceless man clad in a black suit into black and white photos of children, complete with text that describe the mysterious abduction of groups of children by this spectral figure. And it went viral almost immediately. We're talking by 2012, remember, created in mid-2009, by 2012 it had already become the single most recognizable piece of internet folklore, at least from my perspective. I do not think that there is something else that has reached that popularity, and so quick. Like I said, it went viral almost immediately. Creepy as shit, a lot of people just love the idea, and it's such a basic idea, this tall, thin, creepy humanoid guy that abducted children, right, and that, you know, pointing out these fictionalized stories of, you know, way back, way back, like, decades and decades, like, a hundred years ago, we knew about him, and he's still around, that, that, that just, something so basic, obviously, it's going to spark a lot of intrigue in the masses, and that's really what, what pushed Slender Man into the cultural zeitgeist beyond the internet, and, as they say, the rest is history. You know about the Slender Man. 
We all know about the Slender Man. Very popular, right? I just, you can't talk about Creepypasta without mentioning Slender Man because that was really the point where I believe even the term Creepypasta eventually entered the zeitgeist. That was, that was it. That was it, Slender Man. And look, that's just a brief overview of Creepypasta. We can go way more in depth, but like I said at the beginning, this is just a brief, brief, brief overview of some of these things. We don't, we're not going down into the depths of the rabbit hole. We're just sort of dunking below the surface and looking at things. Now, fitting with the theme of internet lore, here's the song this week, complete with a video. It is Fabulous Secret Powers, uploaded originally by Slack Circus to Something Awful in 2005. We are all familiar with this. I've just clipped the bit that we all know. Let's not worry about the beginning of it or the end of it. It's just, just, just the part we all know. And I'll be back with you in just a few minutes to cover Randy Stare. Bye. And so Because I'm who I am in my videos, I'm depressed in real life. You know, I'm I'm suicidal in real life. You know, shit like that. And that irritates me. Why people just put words in your mouth and make you out to be something just because you're a character on a YouTube video. This is something that blows my mind. Um, I can't tell you, like, the amount of comments I've gotten or messages just saying you know, being concerned about me because of how I am in my videos. And reality check.
This is entertainment. This is fiction. This is fake. This is a script, you know? Um, it just shocks me. People take the internet so seriously that they just go out and just say, boom, this guy is this because of how he is in his videos. I had a guy that said I was bipolar because of how I was on my Twitter. When in reality, it's, you know, it's my character that's factoring into this too. You know, oh, he's bipolar. Oh, he's going through psychosis. Blah, 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 blah. Fuck off. Randy Stare, known online as Andrew Blaze, and perhaps better known as the Weiss Markets Shooter. Some may not consider this to be a piece of internet law per se. However, considering the sizable digital imprint that Randy left behind, I would. So we're going to explore a topic, a character, that I find very fascinating. How did Randy Stare, a blatantly average if creative child with a normal suburban upbringing, evolve into a person that would commit a triple murder-suicide? Well, Randy deliberately left behind literal hundreds of hours of video, audio, and writing with intention of providing clarity as to his actions. Randy Stare wanted there to be no mistaking his motivations to commit these crimes. And that is what we're going to explore. But first, let's learn about Randy. He was 24 at the time of the shooting in 2017, ergo there was some required context to cover from those early years. Randy Stare was born on September 17th, 1992, living the entirety of his life at his parents' home in Dallas, Pennsylvania, except for a brief period of time when he went to college. His early life is rather unremarkable, to be honest. He had a younger brother that he was close with during his youth, and an interest in making home movies. This interest in home movies led Randy to YouTube, and in 2008, he would launch the Pioneers Productions channel. Think of that old YouTube kind of amateur hour sketch comedy thing. That's pretty much what we're looking at here. I actually used to watch his content back then, believe it or not. So really shocking to me when this whole thing went down. Kind of like the, oh shit, it's that guy. I haven't thought of that guy in years. It was him. I remember him. You know, but we'll get there. We'll get there. The only very important things to note from this period, in t period of time was the introduction of two characters, Talking Toys, a plush whale, simply known as the Whale. This character was gay, and in hindsight reveals quite a bit about Randy. We will revisit this. Along with this character was another, a masochistic plastic frog named Froggy. Froggy and the whale do have more significance as we progress further. For now, just keep them in mind. Pioneers Productions attained mild popularity, even by 2008 standard. The channel was never like a Fred, for example, but it did attain mild popularity. Randy and his channel were featured on Ray William Johnson in, I believe, 2011. This was when Ray William Johnson was one of the most popular people on YouTube. Nowadays, it's like, who, who the fuck is Ray William Johnson, am I right? But during this period of time, Randy directed a music video for local band Send Request, Comeback Song. It's actually not a bad track. Kind of early, a day-to-remember-esque easycore pretty decent, just to be honest, I do like the song. It was also during this time that Randy Stare developed a love for two things, 
the recently cancelled Nickelodeon animated series Danny Phantom. I've never actually seen this show, and frankly I don't really give a shit to be honest. It's about some kid that enters the ghost realm and fights phantoms, saving the world, or some shit like that. Anyway, Randy identified with a character known as Ember McLean, a sardonic anarchist musician, Ghost Girl. Randy loved Ember, and she will become very important in due time. That's another character to keep in the back of your head, Ember McLean. The other love that Randy developed during this time and two real-world people that he identified with, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, the perpetrators of the Columbine High School Massacre. This revelation would come much later, however, and while it will be mentioned later, as it clearly speaks to Randy's character as far back as his teenage years, we're gonna cover it now. Eric and Dylan were Randy's personal heroes for the last eight to nine years of his life. He was an active member of several forums dedicated to Columbine from the age of 16, where he participated in countless conversations concerning the event, as well as its perpetrators. I'd like to say that in hindsight, these posts, which you can still read by the way, were very concerning. But given a number of factors, these most certainly should have been an area of concern at the time. You see, Randy showed complete indifference to the victims of Columbine, and the general tone in which he would write about Eric and Dylan was definitely reflective of some kind of adoration. Randy Stare, in a video journal entry, presumably recorded in 2016, reveals that he was instantly attracted to the event and to the personas of Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. He describes, with such a passion in his voice, his love for the police photographs of their dead bodies. The emphasis that he places on the word loved, in particular, makes my fucking skin crawl. Like, oh my god. He loved him. Like, the emphasis he puts on that word, I can't even recreate. Like, holy fucking shit. Randy recreated this image a number of times through his art. Needless to say, his mind was warped up to 10 years prior to committing the horrific, the horrific crimes that he would at age 24. Entering college, this fixation on Columbine, Eric and Dylan, would intensify and became that area that he understood more than anything else. So, for example, mine would be professional wrestling. That's the area that I understand more than anything else. For Randy Stare, it was the Columbine Massacre. Although through college, two people that Randy knew in high school would pass away, right? By his own admission, he was not friends with either of them. Regardless, the deaths did hit him hard and further warp his psychology. Randy then became fixated on the idea of death and began, mm, we'll say philosophizing, on his own personal idea of the thereafter. And again, we're going to talk about that very soon. All of these pieces do coalesce in a very dramatic way, to say the least. I should also point out that at some point between high school and college, Randy Stair began working part-time at the Weiss supermarket, the Weiss Markets supermarket in the nearby Eden Township. 
This is where he would eventually commit his triple murder suicide. We're going to jump ahead now to 2014, three years before the incident. Later revelations through his own journal entries tell us that by this point, Randy had a strong desire to kill himself and to take people with him in the process. And this is where his plan to do so really develops, and thus the story does start to become much more interesting. So 2014, the end of Pioneer's Productions, a series of five videos that would serve as both the finale to his previous work and prologue to the forthcoming project. These were actually quite good, to be honest with you. His most praise work as a content creator, and I have no shame in admitting that I do somewhat enjoy these videos to a certain extent. Good acting, better editing than he'd ever done up to that point, and they just made more sense. They were still amateur hour, but for what they were, they were were quite good. I'll grant him that. The brief synopsis here is that Randy, being fed up with Froggy and the Whale, our two characters from earlier, brutally murders them. And burns their fucking remains. Like, he brutally fucking murders them. Notably, the whale was killed for being gay. Randy hated gay people. An admitted homophobe was Randy. Froggy, however, was just kind of an asshole, so he killed Froggy too. These videos culminated in Randy as an on-screen character killing himself and then meeting Ember McLean. We mentioned her before, who, in a manner of speaking, resurrected Randy as a similarly designed cartoon ghost girl named Andrew Blaze. Thus begins Ember's Ghost Squad. So, EGS, or Ember's Ghost Squad, Randy considered to be his magnum opus as a content creator and just as an artist. To understand EGS, one must first understand the concept of a ghost squad. In Randy's fiction, now this is what a ghost squad is, so buckle in, this is, this starts to get batshit insane. In Randy's fiction, a select few people are born with their souls, we'll say linked, to others, and after a quote, deserving death, they return to these other souls, reborn as a female cartoon ghost. They must all be female, and they're all cartoons as ghosts. I, <laughs> it's, it's, it's bizarre. This is the ghost squad. Each ghost squad has a leader. In this particular example, Ember McLean. Hence, Ember's ghost squad. And it is their purpose, at least initially, to find members from the living world and lead them towards the afterlife, joining the Ghost Squad. It is unclear what the overall point of this might be. That is to say, specifically what happens once a Ghost Squad is fully assembled, but they do seem to have some influence over the living world. Uh, What can be said is that once all Ghost Squads are assembled, and there are countless, assumably Eric and Dylan are part of this fucking thing too, but once they're all assembled, the endgame is apparently is to seize control of all realities, or, you know, at least that's what it seems. Randy was very vague about these particulars, but that's the mythology of the EGS series. It is what is followed throughout Ember's Ghost Squad. The only extra bit to add, it's not that relevant, but I might as well, 
This is all overseen by some vague, nebulous, unseen goddess. The important things to consider here are that this was more Tarani than fiction. This was more than just his OC that he had created. He truly believed this. And furthermore, one must earn their place in the Ghost Squad through actions immediately preceding their death. And yes, this is going exactly where you think it might be going. We will get there, but there are a few more things about Randy Stair left to learn before we do. We have to understand Randy's psyche heading into this event, because that is what is so fascinating to me. I don't believe in good and evil. I'm not a pious woman. Condemning Randy as an example of human evil tends to oversimplify a complex psychology. Randy Stair desperately needed help, and that's not to alleviate blame from him. I will absolutely, until the end of time, condemn Randy's actions. There is no justification. What there is in its place is causality, and that's what I want to explore next. The mental state of the late Randy Stair. The mentality of the person that would murder three others in cold blood and then turn the gun on himself. All of this comes from Randy Stair himself, right? Everything I'm about to cover comes from the horse's mouth itself. A wealth of information published just hours prior to the Weiss Market shooting. Some of it's text, majority of it is hundreds of hours of video journal entries. This all comes from Randy. The first thing to note is that Randy was strongly opposed to participating in any kind of therapy, professing in one video journal entry that such a thing, quote, alters who you are, and that it simply would not be him to seek counseling. It goes without saying that this would have helped Randy immensely, right? In addition to this, Randy did not have much support later in his life an estranged relationship with his brother, and parents that, at least from Randy's perspective, were more concerned with his career aspirations, or lack thereof, I suppose, than they were his mental health. Randy describes his hatred for his father, and a desire to fucking kill him. Though in Randy's own words, he wanted his father to suffer. Presumably, like we can surmise, he wanted his father to suffer through through the consequences, or I suppose with the con consequences of Randy's actions. Coinciding with that hatred, Randy also expressed some other hatreds. A hatred for gays, we discussed that earlier. A hatred for non-Caucasians, which kind of just comes out of nowhere when he, when he says that. Like, it's just, wow, okay. You, you don't really expect that when he says that in these video journals. He had a hatred for traditional religion. Probably have guessed that. And a hatred for men, misandry. The misandry is perhaps the most interesting piece of this. As discussed at length earlier, Randy's personal heroes were Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. Randy also loved the Beatles. He fucking loved George Harrison. Though somewhat estranged, he loved and deeply cared for his brother. Ultimately, Randy's hatred of men, from my perspective as somebody that has explored this rabbit hole in depth, does appear... His, his hatred of men, it does appear to be an exaggeration on Randy's part, stemming from two things, I believe. We've already discussed one of those, his resentment of his father. The other, however, it's... Uh, it's a bit of a, uh, a an uncertain issue. 
As discussed, Randy believed that he would be reincarnated as Andrew Blaze, a cartoon ghost girl. Another just as honest way of looking at this is that Randy wanted to be Ember McLean from Danny Phantom. That's what he desired more than anything else in the world. He wanted to be this cute ghost girl from a cartoon that he liked. He described in his video journals a desire to be female, citing its origin to his discovery of the character of Ember. So these two ideas are entwined. They exist as one. Randy goes on to explain a dissatisfaction with his body. However, and you'll forgive me for not going into the specific details of Randy's monologue, because there's no point really, but what he's describing is not dysphoria. Randy was delusional, right? Randy lived in a delusional fantasy world of his own creation. What Randy Stair wanted was to be that particular character from a fucking cartoon series. That character, of course, Ember McLean. And she just so happened to be a female ghost girl. This needs to be made extremely clear. In discussion of Randy Stair, be it online, I've seen it discussed on a television panel once, his actions, they're far too often considered and used as an erroneous example of a delusional, crazy, transgender person. As such, a name often given to Randy is... is Tranny Phantom. Terrible. Randy Stare described... desired, sorry. Randy Stare desired to be a cartoon ghost girl. And even if, hypothetically, Randy did desire to be a woman... That's that's just it, right? It was desire. That That is no way equivalent to the dysphoria and to the body dysmorphia that people such as myself have experienced throughout their lives. Randy was living in a delusional world. Now that we have a clearer understanding of... Sorry, I just had to... I really need to address that. You really need to stress that point because it's... Like I said, that is often used more as more as a weapon against transgender people and I just... Fuck that, right? It, it, this, this has nothing to do with that. It really doesn't. But now that we have a clearer understanding of Randy's psyche, it is time to finally move forward to the grim events. Now, this is going to get very dark. Just a forewarning. You, you should, probably should have guessed it would, but just a forewarning here. So, Randy Stare, he had planned to, of course, as influenced by his heroes, Eric and Dylan shoot up his local high school, the high school that he had once attended. However, it was marked for and quickly demolished. This was to be Randy's means to earn his place in Ember's Ghost Squad. In lieu of this, however, Randy decided to kill his co-workers and then himself at the Weiss supermarkets in which he worked. He acquired two pump-action shotguns. I'm not a gun person, I know nothing about guns, so... The best, the best I can give you is there were two pump-action shotguns. Again, influenced by Columbine. He actually sawed off the ends of one of these. I don't know why that's done specifically. Like I said, I'm not a gun person. But he did saw off one of the ends of this, and he taped duct tape around the the back end of one. I don't know what the back end of a gun is. The You know, the end that faces you. To match, I don't know if it was Eric or Dylan, but to match one of them. Just because he fucking idealized them. The audacity of Randy Stair, just to sidetrack a little here, he feigned remorse in his video journals. 
claiming that he wished that it didn't have to go this way. Though he was clearly regretful, and with sincerity, that he had not taken his life sooner, he showed absolutely no remorse for his future victims or their families. He was remorseful solely because he hadn't killed himself sooner. The audacity, right? This was in one of his video journals. It's it's one of the harder pieces to watch because, like, just for what he's saying and the fact that you can see the sincerity, but you know that he's express what he's expressing, the remorse he's expressing, is bullshit because he feels sorry for himself. So, anyway, Randy purchased two shotguns, and he actually named them, and after characters that he had created, members of the Embers Ghost Squad, Rachel and Mackenzie. Rachel doesn't matter, but Mackenzie. Mackenzie was Randy's fictionalized girlfriend, Another member of Ember's Ghost Squad, I said that, it was a character that he created and was in love with. In Randy's warped mind, Mackenzie would be waiting for him in the afterlife, right? So he named one of his guns after this fictionalized ghost girlfriend that he believed would be waiting for him after he died. It's really heavy shit, right? After several months of training himself with the firearms, all of which recorded, Randy decided on a date. It would be June 7th, in the year of our Lord, 2017. Before this date, Randy flipped a coin. Again, this is recorded on video. Two out of three flips. If heads, Randy would kill himself and only himself at home. If tails, it would be at the Wee supermarkets and he would take people with him. Now, he claimed this to be left up to fate, but despite that, the end result was heads. And Randy repeated the process, until on the second attempt, he got his desired result of tails. And I think it speaks a lot to Randy's character, the fact that he did not edit this video, he did not try to do it again to make it seem as though it was left up to fate. He just left that in, show clearly showing his desire to want to do this. Randy packed Mackenzie, Rachel, and 100 rounds of ammunition into his work bag on the evening of June 7th. And before leaving his home, he posted Mediafire Link, containing hours worth of video journals, a formal suicide note, and what would be his final EGS video, titled The Westboro High School Massacre. This was a cartoon that depicted Randy Stair living out his fantasy of shooting up a school. At the end of this animation, Cartoon Randy turned the gun on himself and became the final member of Emma McLean's now-complete ghost squad, ready to take over the world. For better or worse, I suppose it's a fitting end to his little story, but I am in no way going to depraise or defend this. It's... It's literally an animation of a fucking school shooting, right? It, it's fucking horrible. I'm not even going to put up an image of it. Fuck that. Randy Stair, he arrived at the Weiss Markets in Eden Township, Pennsylvania, at approximately 11pm. For two hours, Randy went about his duties while discreetly blocking off all emergency and the back exit. Just after midnight, Randy posted his final Mediafire link online, entitled Suicide Tapes. These, after watching, 
are clearly directed towards his family, primarily his parents, and they're ex just explaining his actions. These are different to his video journals, this was specifically meant to explain everything to his parents. At 1am, on what was now June 8th, 2017, Randy Stair locked the automatic front doors to the Wii supermarkets, successfully restricting all access to the outside world. Randy Stair then proceeded to open fire, killing three of his co-workers, Victoria Brong, Brian Hayes, and Terry Lee Sterling. A fourth, Kristen Newell, had been distracted at first by music playing in her headphones, Randy approached her from behind, but for unknown reasons, chose not to kill her. This is caught on CCTV footage. You can't see it. As far as I know, I haven't looked for it. I, I don't want to see the footage of the actual fucking massacre that's disgusting. But police reports have indicated that Randy approached her from behind, gun pointed at her, and just decided not to kill her for some unknown fucking reason. Newell eventually fled to the crew room. I mean, you're not going to be... You may have loud music in, you may be facing the other way, but you're not going to be able to ignore a fucking massacre happening in your workplace for very long, right? So, she fled to the crew room. That's where she hid and dialed 911. Randy continued to fire shots into the store. There was no one else left to kill. Newell was hiding. Kristen Newell was hiding. He just continued to fire shots rapidly into the air around the store. He fired at some merchandise, he shot through some glass, and he fired at propane tanks. They failed to explode. Now, a, a weird irony here is that that exact same thing happened during the Columbine Massacre that he idealized. Eric, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold did shoot at propane tanks and they failed to explode. Same thing happened with Randy here, and that is extremely unlikely. You fire a round into a propane tank, it's going to fucking explode. In both of these situations, it didn't, and it doesn't mean anything. I just think it's, it's, it's a really strange historical irony. So, where are we? That's right. Excuse me for that. The police, uh, the police would arrive soon after... This, soon after this event, but before then, I almost called him Ryan. Randy pointed the gun on himself, he turned the gun on himself, shot himself, and ended his life. Then the police arrived, just a couple of minutes after he turned the gun on himself. According to police, a total of 59 rounds had been fired, and all from one firearm. It is unclear which of the two firearms this was, but if you've been following along with this story thus far, I'm sure that I and you yourself, it's a fair assumption for us to make that it was from Mackenzie, right? You, that's something we can assume safely. This supermarket, where the incident occurred, it remained shut until July 13th of that same year. When questioned as to why the store was not relocated, a Weiss Market spokesperson explained that this would be playing directly into Randy's hands. And I would agree, right? He, Randy would have wanted it out of fear to remain shut, to just relocate. This would always be the place that he would haunt. And you know what? Yeah, I completely agree. Don't don't relocate it. Don't don't let this fuck win, right? With that said, there is only one fitting conclusion to this fascinating sco story, and that is to say, fuck Randy Stair. 
Fuck this person. Fuck his refusal to seek help. For as fascinating as this story may be, and believe you me, I find it quite, quite interesting, Randy Stare is not the important character to be remembering here. Fuck Randy Stare and fuck his Nickelodeon ghost. Victoria Brong, Brian Hayes, Terry Lee Sterling, Kristen Newell. Three lives lost, one permanently scarred. And what for? Because one fucking child would have rather lived in and died for a fucking fantasy. This this fucking world that he created. This whole fictional reality of his own creation. Then seek the needed therapy. It alters who you are, supposedly. Look, I wish that I could talk to Randy Stare. But I wouldn't let him get a single word in. I don't care to hear anything that he might have to say. I would tell Randy Stare, I'd slap him in the fucking face and tell him, in no uncertain terms, that if therapy is to change who he is, if it is to alter his being, whatever whatever fucking crazy idea he had, then who he is needs to be altered. As it stands, Randy Stare was a horrible example of humanity, right? That's who Randy Stare was. He was a horrible fucking example of people. Interesting, yes, but fucking horrible. I have zero sympathy for Randy Stare. I chose to humanize him because, believe it or not, Randy Stare was a human being. He wasn't a monster, nor was he the boogeyman. He's no slender man, right? Monsters don't exist. Not in the real world. They don't exist. Neither do cartoon ghost girls. But more importantly, monsters don't exist. It's human beings. Human beings are who do these fucking things. We're all capable of similar actions, every single last one of us. You can disagree with that if you want to, but fact is, it's true. Every single one of us is capable of doing something similar to what Randy Stare did. And if ever you are compelled to hurt another person, please, please, seek help. There's no shame in it, despite what Randy Stare seemed to believe. Fuck you, Randy Stare. And... That's it for this week. We got a bit dark there towards the end with the story of Randy Stare. It was going to be dark. This was something I wanted to cover for a while. I thought it would fit nicely in the back half of the internet lore episode. Just because, like I said, because of his online fingerprint left behind by Randy Stare, because of that fingerprint, I, I do believe it is part of internet lore, at least to a degree. True crime as well, I suppose. It's, it's sort of both. But... Nonetheless, I think it's interesting. I hope you were interested by it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I tried to make this the most interesting kind of educational episode that I've done yet. And I hope I delivered at least a little. Audio is still bad. Shoot me. I don't care. It'll get better. But that's it for this week. I don't know what's coming up next week. We're not doing part two of Internet Law next week. That'll be for down the road. I'm not sure. I hear Floating Roach, though. Yes, I do. There it is. So, we're going to have to call it a day for this week. Thank you for listening, guys. I'll see you next week. Bye. We are dead. I am Musumurai-sama, and I am here to tell you about the Internet Raw. This piece 
of Internet Law Concern Samurai Summer, Kawasaki Samurai Karan, and Benno Sentosan, Treteru, Stiru Samurai Skororu. So, about、uh, twenty years ago, we visited by twelve-year-old Benno Sentosan. He said, let me be samurai. And we say, hi, you join the samurai clan. We train you to be powerful samurai. Then, Benno Sentosan, after 18 years of him be our apprentice, he decided, no, no want to turn 30. No want to be old. Me run away. And take a with me, Samurai Skororu. Fuck all you, Benno Sentosan. Return to Samurai Skororu. Okay, until you next time. Sayonara.